Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast, where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. We tried to pair up students and researchers from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. This year's theme is power in all its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. I'm Ella O'Loughlin and I'm a second year undergraduate studying Arabic and French, and today I'm interviewing Professor Tim Whitmarsh, who is one of the speakers at the event Past Tense, Who Does Greek and Roman Antiquity Belong To?, uh, which will be taking place on Wednesday the 22nd of March at the Classics Faculty. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ella. Thank you for having me on. So you're going to be talking about who Greek and Roman antiquity belongs to, which sounds very interesting. Um, so do you want to talk, start by talking about uh, what do we mean when we talk about owning the past? Can you own the past? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, there's obviously a way in which you can own aspects of the past in the sense of owning material objects. And there's a lot of debate, of course, around who owns the Rosetta Stone, who owns the Parthenon marbles, who owns the various papyri that have been flying around the world and collected by American evangelical uh, museums and the like. A lot of controversy around this question of uh, heritage um, objects and who owns them and who, who gets to decide whether they leave the country, what the market value of them is and all that sort of thing. But a separate question is when we're studying ancient cultures, um, are they intimately connected to one modern culture or not? Or are they actually part of a global heritage? And that's a much more um, open-ended question, really. Uh, and it, it, it's very hard to define the ownership links between past and present in that sense. So, for example, there are also my area, ancient Greece and Rome, there are all sorts of ways in which modern Europeans feel connected to the ancient Greeks and the Romans uh, in a way that perhaps people from China or Japan might not. Nevertheless, there is no, there's no way, there's no real precise way of defining that connection. Uh, there's, there's, there are no DNA links between modern culture and ancient culture. Mm. So if classical cultures had quite a big influence on the culture that we have here in the 21st century in Britain, for example, in like art and philosophy, would it be right to say in some ways that that element of the culture belongs to everyone here? Uh, which element of the culture do you mean? Do you mean the modern stuff or the ancient stuff? The the kind of intangible parts of the ancient culture. So like, for example, mm. the philosophy, the kind of thought that has been developed over time and we still see in modern philosophy. Well, I think maybe ownership is the wrong model to be using here, isn't it? I mean, the, perhaps more important is whether people feel connected to it, whether the people feel that it's valuable to them, that it, it gives them stuff. Because, of course, uh, the the access to the ancient world is easier than it ever has been or to any other parts of um, a culture. I mean, through digitization has absolutely transformed everything. Uh, you can find English language translations of pretty much every major uh, Greek and Latin text online um, and French and German and Italian or whatever. Uh, so as long as you can read those modern languages, you can have a point of access to the ancient world. So it's not really a question of ownership in contexts like that. It's more a question of, if you like, who gets the the prompt to follow up those opportunities, who feels as if they are allowed into that world, who feels as if they've got the skills to get into that world, but who also feels as if um, 
emotionally they they connect to that world and that's the the, the more different difficult challenge for us nowadays i mean there were plenty of people as i say um the the visibility of the greek and the Re greek and latin um the greek and roman world in modern culture is absolutely everywhere from video games through to comics through to music through to movies and the like so in a sense we're, we're as saturated as we ever have been in greco-roman material but there's still a sense i think amongst many people many communities but also many different age groups for example um that the greeks and the romans are not in inverted commas for them and that's what we need to break down in a sense in in the, the mission of democratizing mm. so when you say that we can see greek and roman culture in things like music or video games um what kind of thing are you referring to well the video i mean you, you may have guessed that i'm not a great gamer myself <laughs> but i mean Assassin's Creed is the is the one that people always point to, which has been uh, incredibly successful. And the amount of research that has gone into the recreation of the ancient Greek world, the, the Assassin's Creed um, Odyssey version I'm talking about, uh, I mean, it's actually been a really remarkable collaborative project between the, the, the game's designers and archaeologists and um, ancient historians to create such a spectacular vista that does actually correspond to what we think we know about aspects of ancient Greek topography and urban planning and the like. So uh, things like that are absolutely, I mean, it was unthinkable 10, 15 years ago that one of the most startling and accurate visual recreations of the Greek world could come through a video game. But that's, the, that's where we are at at the moment because so many people play video games and there's so much money in that industry that they can actually afford to spend time working with classicists to get it right. Mm. Um, and would you say that this opening up of classics in terms of it being in more of these kind of accessible medias, has it had an influence in, have people become more interested in this field? Has it led to people, for example, wanting to learn ancient Greek? Or has it, does it remain kind of elitist, if you would say it's elitist? Well, um, I, I mean, that, that's really the question, isn't it? Um, is it elitist and what do we mean by elitist here? Um, clearly, there's nothing inherently elitist about um, reading the Odyssey or something like that. It's a very accessible story that um, for millennia, people have been picking up copies of the Odyssey and enjoying it. And there have been versions that have been read to kids and the like. So it's, it is not, there's nothing, there's no barrier between any one human being and enjoying a good story from the ancient world. It, it is a question of feel. I think it, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier that I think particularly in our modern world where given how much is available, people have sort of paradoxically retreated into um, sort of bubbles and um, micro groups and so forth. And people have thought, well, this is for me, this is for people like me or whatever, and this is for people like... So um, the the bigness of the world has, in a weird way, led to a contracting of emotional horizons, at least, even though, as I say, there's so much stuff out there. So I think that that it's a new set of, of almost sort of self-imposed gatekeeping uh, that we... Uh, 
are facing at the moment. Now, it's your question. I mean, whether Assassin's Creed and the like have, have got more people into the classical world. I mean, I think, I think probably, yes, they have. I mean, the, the evidence, for example, from the US where people tend to go to university with a broader prospectus before them of subjects that, that they need to do a bit of this, bit of that or whatever. Um, it seems to be that people teaching classics departments there, if they get students into their classics courses and they say, okay, well, you played Assassin's Creed, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper. That's a very effective way of getting, of hooking people in. I mean, that sounds a bit uh, <laughs> as if you're trying to get people hooked on drugs or something like that, but there is, um, uh, you know, there's always an element of that when you're doing outreach work, you always try, you have to try to use the point of connection that people have to the, the subject in question. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, it would be really interesting to know more about the stats on how many people are now coming in through gaming, for example. I mean, it's a very interesting area. Yeah. Um, do you think it is possible to completely eradicate this elitism in the reception and study of classics? And do you have any other ideas of how you might go, go about doing that? Well, I mean, to repeat a point I made earlier, uh, the the elitism is often in people's own minds. Now, that's only true up to a point. I mean, there are um, if you're studying the ancient Greek, uh, the Greco-Roman world using the languages, the languages take a lot of time and effort to master. And at the moment, unfortunately, though in the UK at least, that uh, energy is only devoted uh, by private schools, or not only, but um, largely by private schools. So there is a real structural elitism there that I think we need to overcome. And there are very many ways of overcoming it. But more generally, I honestly don't think that with a little bit of prompting and a little bit of you know just a tiny little leg up i don't think that the classical world is closed to anyone in this culture uh, in in this um in the country at the moment i think it's a question of perhaps we classicists developing a broader sense of what it is that we can offer many different communities i mean when i was in Oxford, I ran a, a conference on um, late antiquity in Islam, for example, that was one of the most successfully attended conferences I've ever done. And there were all sorts of people, uh, non-academics that actually came to this conference and really wanted to hear about how the Greco-Roman world and the world of early Islam interacted. It was in the aftermath of Tom Holland's book, In the Shadow of the Sword, which was quite a controversial take on all of this. But we had a series of experts and it was all you know, very level-headed and academic, also very accessible. Um, and as I say, it's at moments like that that you realize that the Greco-Roman world, which existed for, depending on how you want to define it, 1500 years across a huge space from India to Britain, down to um, the sub-Saharan Africa, um, an absolutely enormous geographical territory and encompassed millions of people. And it's post-antique reception, of course, has, has, has been even more dramatic than that. This quasi-global uh, ancient world actually touches 
so many different um, groups of people. And even beyond the boundaries of the Greco-Roman world, I mean, um, a lot of really fascinating work has been done on comparisons between China and Greece, for example, ancient China and ancient Greece, which are actually remarkably similar cultures in all sorts of ways and developed at the same sort of time, developed um, systems of serious complex philosophical thought at around the, at the same time. It's often been called the axial age after Karl Jaspers' phrase, uh, this era where Greece, India and China simultaneously developed, as I say, sort of complex philosophies. So even if we're not talking about influence, there are ways of talking to different communities across the world. Mm. Um, how do you think, if we were able to open up the classical world to everybody, how do you think the average person in Britain would benefit from understanding more about Greek and Roman antiquity? Uh, now, I think we're in danger at the moment of shrinking the way that we understand the world around us, shrinking it to a, um, a narrowly scientific version of things coupled with a what you might broadly call a sort of social scientific perspective on things. Let's say we think of um, progress in the intellectual world in terms of understanding the matter around us, which is the scientific way of looking at things, and in terms of understanding economics and social structure and politics, which is the social scientific way of looking at things. But there's always been a third component to the university system, which is the humanities, um, which teach you to understand how people think, um, react, um, believe, uh, um, um, perform uh, in a historical and cross-cultural dimension. And that is absolutely vital for giving us depth and breadth in our understanding of individual human interaction and collective human interaction. And also for helping us to understand how in some ways, there are aspects of human behavior that are cross-cultural and universal. And in fact, actually the tendency these days is to see more aspects of the, the of human personality as uh, cross-cultural and you know part of um, a, a results of the way that the brain is wired evolutionarily. Um, but there are, all, there are inevitably always ways in which things are culture bound and culture specific. And in order to progress, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. In order to progress as a culture, you need to understand those parts of your culture that are not necessarily natural and not necessarily set in stone, but that are flexible and the result of the particular set of historical contingencies that have arisen over the last uh, however many years. So looking at humanity in it, all of its depth and breadth, and that includes its ancient depth and breadth is absolutely critical. Now the Greeks and the Romans give us the best documented ancient society. Um, uh, Greece, um, India and China, as I say, um, are very richly documented ancient society, but we don't have that um, volume of material and diversity of material for any other culture than for the Greco-Roman world. It's our best window onto a pre-modern, non-Christian, um, 
um, world, a complex uh, society, which is not for a minute to say that studying other pre-modern non-Christian societies is, is not valuable, but it is an amazing resource that we have in the Greco-Roman world. I'm not one of these people who puts it on a pedestal and says we must study it because it's inherently superior or the like, but I think that just, the, as I say, the, the volume of evidence and the richness of our secondary literature, if you like, the richness of our scholarly reflections on this sort of material means that it's a an absolutely invaluable resource for unthinking modernity. Mm. Do you think also the fact that there's so much material about this, about Greco-Roman antiquity, could also be an argument for why we should put more focus on studying other pre-modern civilizations? Because there's historically been more resources, more funding for studying this, but perhaps if we were able to put more focus, encourage people into studying other areas of the world, then perhaps we would be able to get a different angle on this pre-modern, these pre-modern civilizations. I, I would love to see a ancient cultures network that um, shared understandings of um, ancient cultures in general, including South American and indeed North American ancient cultures, uh, African ancient cultures, um, Pacific ancient cultures and the like, and uh, just helped us to enrich our sense of the diversity of, of pre-modern res responses. I mean, I think, I think just as I said earlier that modern culture needs to unlearn its modernity, I think classicists benefit hugely from comparative work that shows the limits of the, you know, the habits and the instincts that were operative in in Greco-Roman antiquity, and the way in which their neighbours were were operating differently. Now that that said, um, Greece and Rome uh, have. I mean, there's, there's less and less resource going into the, the study of classical stuff, um, decade by decade. So I don't think it's terribly beneficial way of looking at things to say um, we should study the Greeks and Romans less um, and, um, and divert some of that resource. I think we need to have more resource generally for ancient world studies. Mm. Um, what do you mean by unlearning modernity? I mean that, uh, yeah, good question. I mean, the, the, the simple way of thinking about that is that um, the modern West has become a very uh, very confident culture that has in has come to believe that its way of doing things is absolutely inevitable. So um, realizing that ways of organizing society, ways of thinking about the value of money, ways of thinking about our relationship to the planet, our relationship to each other, our relationship to religion and the like um, are um, not normal, but the results of a particular set of historical circumstances. I think that's an extremely valuable lesson. And that does come with studying either other, other modern cultures or older uh, cultures. So I meant that at one level, um, but there is a secondary level there as well, which um, I'm thinking really about the the work of uh, the dear departed recent um, Bruno Latour, who wrote a book called We Have Never Been Modern, which was really a way of 
attacking the enlightenment idea that we are moving towards greater senses of, in, of you know, we're, we're getting better at um, understanding uh, things. Uh, and that sense that being in the modern world somehow gives us a unique perspective, a unique vantage on things. It's complicated because, I mean, I actually do myself partially believe that we have become, I mean, the evidence isn't, isn't always overwhelming, but I do, I think we have become better at understanding uh, many things. I think the um, debates around uh, gender, debates around uh, uh, ecology and the like, um, these are evidence that we, we're getting better at understanding our moral obligations to others and to the planet. Um, but I don't think that's, it's, a, I don't think it's true in its entirety to say that modernity has seen progress. I think we've gone backwards in, in very many ways. Mm. What ways do you think we've gone backwards then? I think in terms of understanding our relationship to others in uh, I think nowadays there is a tendency to understand our relationships to others in more instrumental ways and in less affective ways in terms of we I think we've lost I mean this makes me sound like a dreadful old conservative but you know we have <laughs> lost a, a sense of what a community is and I think that's partly um, a result of trying to adjust to the rapidity of change over the last hundred years or so. I mean, the process of global industrialization and um, uh, the movements of cultures and the interconnectedness of cultures, I think all of that, I think it will take a long time to settle down. Maybe we will learn again what it is to be in a community. Maybe we are currently remaking ideas of community using new media and the like, but I still think that the modern West hasn't really developed an ethics to parallel these rapid changes. I think um, the slide into a more mercantile, um, more callous way of seeing selfhood, I think that's a, a really regrettable thing. Mm. Was there a strong sense of community in these like Greco-Roman periods? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. I mean, the, for the Greek world, most thing throughout most of Greek, Greek antiquity, uh, life was centered on the city-state, and the city-state was viewed in incredibly cohesive terms. I mean, the number of festivals that you have. I mean, a, a sacrifice, for example, is at one level a religious event where you set, you kill an animal and you offer it to the gods but it's also a big party it's an opportunity to share food together and they, they they invested an awful lot of time in being together now there are limits to the ways in which they um, understood togetherness and that's to say the involvement of women was not equal to the involvement of men uh, there were some people, some members of that society that were obviously excluded from those from participation. Um, I mean, some events were open to slaves, but many were not. Um, and of course, that sense of togetherness often carried with it a sense of difference from other people that 
could express itself in forms of violence and warfare and the like. So it's not always an entirely rosy picture and creating a community and creating a sense of togetherness uh, is always a complicated process that has its risks as well as its opportunities. Nevertheless, I think they did invest in a sense of selfhood and a selfhood that was interlocked with community in a much more sophisticated way than, than we do now. Mm. Um, would you say that your personal study of like the Greco-Roman world has changed the way you see society and culture now? Yes, it's hard to answer that question because I've been doing it for so long, really. I mean, I first learned, I mean, it's incredible, really, but I first started doing Latin when I was about 10 and Greek when I was 12. So it's always been part of my life. And I don't think there was was ever really a time, well, it's a long time since it wasn't the dominant set of lenses through which I viewed the world. I mean, not, not that I viewed the world as an ancient Greek or whatever, but... Um, but I've been reading this stuff and immersed in it for so, so long. But yes, it has left an effect on me, a very profound effect on me. Um, but I can't see the change anymore. What I would say is that the ancient philosophers uh, did have a very useful set of resources for thinking about some of these issues that we've been talking about. For example, um, how do you, I mean, perhaps to shift slightly, uh, I mean, the Stoics and the Epicureans, uh, these are two philosophies that developed in the Hellenistic period. Both of them were broadly materialist in different ways. That's to say they understood the world not in terms of the soul, um, um, uh, narrowly un understood, um, but in terms of, matter that the world is made of, of matter and stuff or whatever uh, and they also gave people resources for thinking about themselves in a complex embattled world and they were all about sort of building a sense of confidence for the individual and giving the individual the sense that the things that happen to them in the world that that seem bad and difficult or whatever uh, can if you reassess and if you use your inner resources if you think about if you have the right set of lenses through which the view of the world uh, can be seen as less threatening and they're both that both philosophies really are about generating happiness uh, in the individual and generating a warmer sense of one's relationship to one's fellow human beings so i think Things like that. I mean, I've certainly been able to transport into my own life uh, a sense that when one acts ethically, and of course we don't always act ethically, but one tries to, when one acts ethically, it is partly to make society better, richer, warmer, um, to develop friendship, to develop sociality, to make human beings collectively better uh, if one can um, and partly also to cultivate that sense of detachment that means that you know if you're feeling very very angry at the moment about something about someone cycling in front of you and you nearly falling off your bike or whatever and then the thing to do is not actually to get terribly worried about that um, but it's to relax and to 
say, okay, well, nothing happened there. Um, maybe if I see that person again, I'll have a word with them or whatever. That would be the good thing to do to, to stop an accident next time. Um, but at the moment, um, my anger is not a good thing to do. And that's something I push to the side. So I think, I think yes, the answer is yes. Uh, yes, I've learned an awful lot from studying the Greeks and the Romans. But mm. I think it goes the other way as well. I think living in the modern world, um, as we all do, <laughs> even people <laughs> like myself who uh, are largely disconnected from it, um, uh, living in the modern world, obviously you it's a changing world and that changes the lens through which you see the ancient world as well. So I've found that particularly in the world of new media and um, where we've been thinking about the, the really serious effects of globalization, like the pandemic, for example, and that has changed the way that I've seen the Roman Empire, certainly. I mean, the Roman Empire being an early version of a, of a globalized world, which had its own pandemics as well, of course. Mm. Um, I know we hear a lot about Greek philosophers now, and is that because it was a particularly rich time for philosophy because people, I don't know, had a lot of space and time to think, or is it more to do with the way things have been recorded and passed down? Well, that's a very good question. So there is a movement towards global philosophy at the moment. It's a book by Julian Bergini, for example, and Paul Adamson's done some great, great work on um, uh, arguing essentially that all cultures have their philosophies in the sense that all cultures have their sophisticated, mature ways of processing roughly the same kinds of questions. How do I become a happy person? How do I spread happiness amongst other people? How do I pursue the good without um, uh, shafting other people? And all, all these kind of questions that we're very familiar with. So I, I think one does need to take that perspective at one level to say that there's nothing special about the Greeks and Romans in both identifying these problems and having resources to deal with them. But at the same time, I mean, it does ha happen to be the case that, as you say, the Greeks and the Romans invested quite a lot in um, not just writing down, but also transmitting this material. And they valued it very highly. There were philosophical schools and being a philosopher was an elevated position in society. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that Greek society in particular got writing relatively late for an ancient Mediterranean society, later than the Phoenicians and the Egyptians and the um, um, Israelites. Um, and um, at that time, there was not a, a sort of scribal class. There wasn't a priesthood, for example, that, that um, had learned to dominate the writing system. The writing system was actually um, pretty freely available to anyone who had the resources to and that means um, literacy, essentially, the, the ability to read and write. So uh, when Greece took on literacy, um, it was at a time when, and priesthoods in Greece were relatively circumscribed in terms of, of their, their tasks. Um, you know, the job of a priest was to run the uh, temple uh, finances and to ensure that the sacrifices happened and the like. So... Um, writing was not necessarily sort of for in inverted commas um, anyone it was um, they had to decide what they were going to do with writing so um, it, it turned out to be the case that writing was used for things like poetry and philosophy that were not tied to 
any direct social program. They were not part of the state. I mean, some of them, the state did use writing, but by and large, there was an awful lot of writing that was generated very quickly that was not um, normative, if you like. It wasn't ideologically programming. It wasn't designed for um, state purposes. Um, I mean, it's a simplification. Uh, but it does mean that, yes, we've just got a lot of very, very diverse stuff from antiquity. And uh, it was a very competitive culture as well. So um, one person writes a treatise on how water is the first element of things. And then someone comes along and says, no, no, it's not. It's air. It's got to be air or whatever. So you've got all this sort of argumentative um, structure uh, built into the nature of Greek society itself. Mm. So you say like the Phoenicians and other cultures have developed like writing. Do we still have these writings or have they been lost somewhere? Well, Phoenician, uh, the Phoenician alphabet is the origin of the Greek alphabet, even though the Phoenician language itself is a Semitic language, so it's not related to the Greek language. Um, we only have Phoenician inscriptions, uh, unfortunately. So we don't have long texts in Phoenician unless they're inscribed. Uh, Egypt, on the other hand, yes, we've got a fair amount of, you know, really quite good amount of uh, ancient Egyptian literature. Uh, ancient Israelite society, well, we've got this thing called the Bible. <laughs> um, <laughs> we haven't got anything else. But um, so, yes, there are bodies of ancient texts. Um, Ugaritic culture, another Semitic culture, was was discovered in the, uh, I think, the 20th century. Um, and um, that was a really transformative moment when it was realised that there was, a, you know, an, another ancient culture from the Levant that um, how it was sophisticated and used writing and the like. So, yes, we do have uh, other um, ancient cultures that were highly literate. Uh, we don't have as much of them as we have as uh, for, for Greece and Rome. I mean, to put it very crudely, the later you go in time, the more stuff you have from cultures uh and um because greece was later than um most of the cultures i've mentioned um in fact the hebrew bible is sort of pretty much uh, developed at the same time as greek culture um but uh yeah i mean when you go into the roman period you just get more and more and more and more stuff and then of course when you go into the medieval period you get more and more and more stuff as well so so the egyptians and the Phoenician, well, Phoenicians, um, um, the Egyptians and the uh, Mesopotamians, let's say the Iraqis, uh, are sort of, um, I mean, the, their earliest texts are earlier than the, the Greek materials. Mm. Do you think if we had the same kind of materials on any of these other cultures, and it was possible to study them as deeply as you can, the Greco-Roman period, then you would have the same effects from studying them as you talk about from studying classics now of being able to unlearn modernity and see things with a slightly different perspective? I, I think I think we've got enough materials. I mean, uh, people spend a lifetime studying ancient Egypt, obviously, and um, ancient Assyria and ancient um, um, Ugarit and ancient Israel and the like. So uh, I, I wouldn't want to make an exclusive claim for classics on those. I mean, I know it sounded a bit as if I, earlier I was saying that you know, the Greeks and the Romans are, you know, have just so much more, and they do have so much more evidence than other ancient cultures. But, but yeah, no, I mean, you, you can do, you can have a very effective um, career thinking through the different differentness of ancient cultures using 
uh, other cultural lenses to the Greeks and the Romans. Mm. Um, and what do you think the future of the study of classics is going to look like? How do you think, how do you see it changing in the future? Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're moving away from the the model which has been dominant for the last 20, 30 years, more 40 years, of seeing the ancient world as entirely um, separate from our world. Um, uh, and thinking more about universalism and thinking more about uh, um, ways in which the brain is actually a cross-cultural constant. So cognitive studies, essentially, I think is becoming really important. But more generally, as I say, I think people are um, trying to think about humanity as a sort of, um, think about points of connection between different cultures more than they were in terms of uh, points of difference, which means broadly a more sort of scientific um, approach to things. I think also, um, talking about science, I think that the the digital humanities revolution has only really just begun. Our tools at the moment are um, very useful, but essentially quite crude at the moment. I think that, I mean, when it comes that we can, um, I mean, there's a project at the moment to supplement ancient inscriptions through a form of AI. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. That will be transformative. I should just say uh, thank you very much, Ella. It was a really interesting conversation. Okay, thank you as well, Tim. Um, make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for more fascinating events. And follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations with this year's experts on the theme of power in all its forms. Thank you for listening.